Welcome to episode 6 of Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Arjun Shankar, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. So far in this podcast, we've been laying the groundwork for our listeners to see the range of possibilities for anthropologists as public and political intellectuals, as researchers invested in the four-field approach, and as ethnographers interested in thinking differently about our work given the tools available to us in the 21st century. And it's in this context that we present this episode, which deals with multimodal anthropologies, a moniker we deploy in the sense that our colleagues in American Anthropologists' multimodal anthropology section have encouraged as a way to both pay homage to the history of visual anthropology that informs much of this type of research, while expanding what we imagine as the outputs of anthropological work in image, sound, and text in the digital age. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Carolyn Rouse of Princeton University and Brent Luvas of Drexel University, both of whom provide very different ways to begin answering this question. Really, if there's one thing that might feel both exciting and daunting about the multimodal moment, it's just how many possibilities these methods provide for really transformative work. I think with that, I'll pass it over to Tali Zeev and Kyle Olson, graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania. Please enjoy. Good morning. How are you? How are you? I'm going. I'm going. Going to mix some music. I'm going to do so in a way that tells a story. Something never, nobody's ever heard before. My name is Tali Zeev. I'm a fourth-year graduate student at UPenn, uh, and I am here with Carolyn Ross. And we're going to be talking about her multimedia work and her interest in media more generally. I guess we can start really broadly and maybe just if you could chat a little bit about your work and sort of what you think makes it multimodal or what sort of makes it multimedia more generally. So I started out in visual anthropology studying with Tim Ash mm -hmm. at USC and Michael Rinoff, who was in critical studies in the film school. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, I had gone to graduate school because I just wanted to be a filmmaker. I'd worked with Fred Wiseman, and um, then I'd worked on a major motion picture, and I really just wanted to make documentary films. Um, but I realized that it was a difficult life. <laughs> so I went on and got my PhD. And while I was doing that, I continued to make films. Uh, so I've always loved film. It was my in a sense, plan A, mm -hmm. and uh, being a professor was plan B. And as many people know, anthropology still doesn't quite know how to treat film as the same as written work. Mm -hmm. I know that at the University of Pennsylvania, where you're from, mm -hmm. John Jackson has been spearheading this effort to treat them as equivalent, mm -hmm. but it's been very difficult. And so when I decided to, to join this profession, I put aside my visual anthropology in order to write. But I've always wanted to come back to it, and I made a film in South Africa. Mm -hmm. We finished it in 2015, and it's on Vimeo, and it's uh, called Listening is a Radical Act. Mm -hmm. and it, it deals with the question of world anthropologies with a, a group of international scholars who use ethnography. Mm -hmm. And I love it. It's very didactic. It's not what I learned in film school. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one way in which I've tried to continue my visual anthropology. I think now what I want to do 
with my department at Princeton is really try to find fun ways, not just fun, but really important ways to take these new digital technologies and try to educate people about anthropological theories and concepts Mm -hmm. and our data, knowing that people have become so much more visual, Mm -hmm. visual learners, and that our work is actually more visual than we understand it. And that being able to translate those concepts visually will be really helpful. So we, we created an ethnographic data visualization lab last year. We're still working on it. I'm building it. And one of the first things we're doing is we're taking data from 7,500 subjects around the Philadelphia area, captured by this anthropologist and physician at CHOP, where he was studying the development of these kids. Mm-hmm. And we're now taking that data and we are using maps, ethnography, archival data, and we're trying to understand and s- to see if there are actually environmental impacts on, mm-hmm. on development. And it's a robust study. It's a difficult study. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before consent forms were signed. But we want to be able to create a multimodal representation of what it is we capture. Because I like the digital humanities, but there's a certain flatness to it. It's very archival, or you have these maps where you have these little dots on a map. Well, we want those dots to become you know, four-dimensional, have elements of time and space, and then people in those spaces, because what does it mean to move around a city that's polluted? And how does that impact a body? Complex things, and we're just at the cutting edge of trying to figure that. In fact, our IRB at Princeton is, is scratching its head on even how to, right, how to give yeah. us consent. But we feel like this is the future of this integration of digital technologies, mm-hmm. humanities into anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we could, we could do this better. It seems like in your work, you know, the visuality is part of it, but you've also just focused on sort of media more broadly and the power of media, mm-hmm. different types of media. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we were curious to sort of maybe hear you contrast a bit sort of the potential of like visuality versus even something like radio podcasts mm. um, and televised redemption. You sort of mm-hmm. talk about the importance of these of these media. And so I'd just be curious yeah. to hear you contrast them a little. So media is capacious Mm -hmm. and we have to really clarify what we mean when we talk about media and that was the struggle with the book because there's so much media Mm -hmm. you know what are you focused what are your analytics and so I mean I think this is one of the reasons why even making films is a difficult thing to equate with a a book let's say Mm -hmm. because the action is in front of you but how does it connect to theories Mm -hmm. and these theoretical conversations? Mm -hmm. So with respect to media, when I teach it, Mm -hmm. I teach it with respect to language theory because it's all about signifiers, Mm -hmm. juxtapositions, Mm -hmm. bricolage, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Lacan, de Saussure, Peirce, right? It's a language, mm-hmm. and it's full of these pregnant signifiers. Mm-hmm. And I want my students to understand that they already have learned how to read media in the same mm-hmm. way they already have learned how to speak, right? They have already mm-hmm. know how to read it. And I show them old films or old documentaries, and they're like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. they, can't, they can't even read it because it, it's too slow, and the, there's mm-hmm. an aesthetic issue, and there's the cutting issue, and there are mm-hmm. all of these 
there's it's so different so that's one way in which i teach media studies is mm -hmm. for them to understand um, and then also this question about ideology and and film and the power of of, of the signifiers mm -hmm. to create a kind of common senseness about reality mm -hmm. that then um, blinds you to its power to lull you into thinking that it's all right, all factual. In the past, I always taught this course called Religion and Media, and this year I've added Religion, Ideology, and Media, because as we know, just as religion is a cultural system, ideology is a cultural mm -hmm. system, and I'm sort of shocked at how sort of Trumpism has replaced evangelical media, mm -hmm. which brought the Bushes to power and really promoted Reagan, totally ideological, almost devoid of any religious signifiers, except mm -hmm. occasionally they'll throw a bone around abortion or something like that. But, mm -hmm. but basically there's nothing there that's particularly religious. So, so it's an opportunity for the students to recognize the relationships between religion and ideology and just culture. In what you've been talking about thus far, there's this really interesting duality inherent with media, right? So there's this sort of power to dupe, indoctrinate, sort of cast an ideological spell over folks, but there's also the differential power that affords a particular type of recognition, a type of accessibility um, to represent yourself. And I know in, in the past, you've sort of talked about engaging media and especially sort of African-American communities engaging media to counteract some of those same forces. And so can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what we talk about in the televised redemption is that work that was required to humanize the black race in this country. And, you know, you have these three different faiths thinking about the particulars of that project differently, sort of all having to respond. They responded differently to Marcus Garvey's kind of, okay, it's time for us to, to flee and create our own state, right? And of course, the Christians said, no, we're digging in our heels, we're going to stay here. The Muslims are like, well, we want to stay here, but we don't really want to work with white folks. And then the black Hebrew Zulu is like, well, I think we'll leave, you know, I think we'll leave, but, uh, you know. Um, and and also the, the, the language of all of three of them are very different as well. Um, you know, you have the black Hebrew Israelites creating all sorts of new terms just to to decolonize the self through language. And then you have the televangelists sort of trying to empower people by getting them to embody the dispositions and practices of neoliberalism. Right? And then you have the Nation of Islam that says, we're okay with capitalism, but we want a moral economy built around us supporting each other around a particular moral project. And so they use media in different ways. And so we don't want to be functionalist about our analysis, but you have radio, which makes sense for the Black Hebrews, because language is such a big part of what they're trying to do to empower people. And of course, you have the televangelists, which uses not just small media, um, documentaries and radio, um, but big media. Um, and then you have the Nation of Islam doing a lot with respect to publishing and publishing newspapers, writing themselves into their own history in a particular type of way. And the cartoons that I include in Televised Redemption, when they were first printed, people thought they were radical and insane. And I think what I hope people get when they read them is they didn't have a language 
for explaining how they felt at the other end of the police, right? They didn't have a language that we have now when we talk about mass incarceration and, you know, terror, policing terror. So they were using visual images to represent their their experience in really profound ways that now they don't look radical at all. And so they all had to find different ways to, to try to get people to be seen by others as, as human, but also for them to see themselves as human. Because a lot of the converts to Islam, they said they felt like they were in the mud. They felt like dirt. And white supremacy can, does a number on black psyche, right? So that kind of rejection, the white savior of the kind of the idea that white people will save you, you just need them to accept you was empowering. And so this is in part why uh, I just taught a class and at the Society of, or the School of Criticism and Theory at Cornell on the case against reparations or radical rethinking of social justice in the 21st century, because what I've learned through my field work is that we don't need to be tied to somebody else repairing. We can do this ourselves because it's been done. Um, and we just have to learn from it and embrace it. Going back a bit then to the ethnographic, would you say that the combination of different types of media and modes creates a more accurate or precise representational form that has doesn't have sort of the same danger inherent with it to sort of run amok and enter these other types of discursive forms, these other types of ideological traditions? I think, yeah, I mean, when I think of I'm sitting here with you guys and, you know, I see you, I hear you, um, we're engaging linguistically with not only words, but with concepts that we know. So, you know, you see when you, you have both the book, the visual, the audio, it becomes more of how we learn as people when you add, I think, what you call multimodal media because each of these things has something to offer. And this, I mean, this is what anthropology does. Right? It gives us context for understanding things. And the multimodal just gives us more context, right? Because that context matters, whether we're talking about exchange, whether we're talking about medical anthropology, whether we're talking about legal anthropology, understanding how laws are created in context, how you know, people understand health in context, how economies are built around these complicated interactions between money and exchange relationships in people and giving and taking and rights and duties. So, yeah, I celebrate all of this because even our books can be only one part of it. It's only one mode. And they're wonderful if you can get people to get through them. They're wonderful, right? And they explain so much. But multimodal forces you to explain the same thing in another form, which actually, I think, improves your translation of it. Again, if you're making a film, what kind of film? Would you narrate the film? Would it be a cinema verite? What, what kind of film would you do to represent that? So every time you choose another mode, you create a new kind of lens by which people can see the same thing, which I think gives it more dimensions. I think that's where we need to go. So yeah, I, I think that, that we should embrace it all as anthropologists. So I think you've really made a case for 
sort of why anthropology matters, which seems to be a question we continue to ask ourselves over the many years. Um, and that largely centers around sort of providing meaning um, and different forms of context. And so in terms of advice for fledgling anthropologists who are sort of setting out to create projects and to think about searching for new ways to provide both sort of context and also investigate meaning, any sort of advice you can give on that process of thinking through the different utility of modes and of different modes or different media? So let's go to the oldest form, which is theory. Having spent six weeks with these graduate students and early professors, it's really important to take time to read. And that's a, that's a separate thing, right? To be part of a long, ongoing conversation. A lot of the stuff we see now is not new. That's, I think, a really important piece. And I think social media is such immediate that we, you know, people spend a lot of time online and they need to break a little bit from that and, and go back to these powerful works. And then you're always, that's always in the back of your head as you are in your field site. And another thing I want people to do is trust the experience and trust it and try as hard as you can to get away from my, your own identity politics. And that is even anthropology has a particular set of politics around theorists and theories. And, and you have to free yourself from that, too. Again, trust the experience. And I say that in part because of you know race is such a powerful trope. I work in race. It's such a powerful trope. But sometimes you can want to please people by saying things that you don't necessarily find in the field, but you feel you know, you're supposed to, because of the politics of citation, say things. But I think in the long run, you have to really trust the experience. And, and if you do, that honesty, that, that on, brutal honesty is what is needed. And so you have, to, you know, you have to, to trust that. And that's when you have to keep going back to try to figure out theoretically where you are. And then, and then there are so many different ways in which you can represent that. And you're doing this now with podcasts. And you can do that in photography to take the things that we can't necessarily say because of IRB or because it's too difficult to lay out the case. No one's going to listen to find other artistic forms to say what we want to say. Um, and I think we should embrace that. Uh, our culture is saturated by the image in a variety of different forms. Uh, the image itself, whether moving or still, and whether transmitted by a variety of different media, seems to be able to have become the privileged sign of late modern culture. And late modern culture is not only that culture which one finds in the advanced industrial, post-industrial societies of the Western world, but because of the global explosion in communication systems, it is also the saturating medium, the saturating uh, idiom of communication worldwide. My name is Kyle Olson. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Anthropology. So today we're here with Brent Luvas of the Department of Anthropology at Drexel University. Uh, the reason we wanted to interview you was because of your recent book, 
Street Style, an ethnography of fashion blogging. Um, could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, this is a book that grew out of a project I started about five or so years ago now. I'd just gotten back from Indonesia and was looking into a way to do uh, you know, continuation of my research over there and came across a number of people that had been involved with the uh, indie music and fashion scene that I've been studying in Indonesia who are now doing fashion blogs. And through that, became interested in this larger project of blogging. And um, one day I was looking through the uh, set of Indonesian fashion blogs that I looked through. They were talking about a certain street style blogger named Ivan Radek, who I didn't know of at the time, who was in Indonesia photographing cool looking people, putting them up on his blog called Face Hunter. And we're super excited about this guy being there. So I looked him up and discovered a whole network of other blogs that he was connected to who were doing this thing called street style blogging, basically wandering around their home cities, taking pictures of people that they thought were interesting looking, putting up them up on their blog. And I saw sort of a lot of commonality between what I do as an anthropologist who's focused on youth culture, or at least at that time was very focused on youth culture and style, and what these guys were doing, going around to different countries, documenting what it looks like to be young, hip, and urban at any given moment. So I started to be to follow a number of uh, street style bloggers from around the world. Thought there was an interesting project to do about street style as a kind of mode of amateur visual anthropology. And um, the only way that I could think to do the kind of participant observation research that I do about this group of people who are scattered all over the world was to start my own blog, Urban Field Notes, and connect with a number of other street style bloggers around the world through that medium. So it became this kind of hybrid project of the digital uh, in terms of you know putting post, posting stuff on my blog, engaging in conversations with bloggers all over the world through that, but then also going out in the streets of Philadelphia and New York primarily, uh, taking pictures of people that I came across myself and really understanding in an embodied way what it takes to be a blogger and to do this kind of work. Yeah, so I think there's an important lesson to be learned there about following the lead of your ethnographic subjects. Right. But then the question that I think becomes more general is for just any ethnographer, this question of autoethnography that you use in your book. Well, you know, I think it's really critical if you're doing this kind of autoethnographic work that really is a kind of anthropology of becoming, right? It's about mm -hmm. becoming that which you study. Right. Um, you're breaking down, sort of collapsing that, that artificial boundary between you and your research subject in a, in, a, in a way that is perhaps more pronounced than in other kinds of ethnographic research. And the only way, way I think to effectively do that is to treat your interlocutors as um, those people who are there to instruct you on how to do it, right? You're, right yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, so Tim Ingold talks about learning from our research subjects rather than about them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really classic example of where you would have to engage in that sort of ethnographic work. So. It was about me being in the sustained dialogue with street style bloggers and photographers who were doing this kind of work, asking them about their methodology, observing them doing it, and then trying to apply it myself on the streets of Philadelphia, just wandering around with a camera, trying out those techniques, trying to emulate the kind of images that they were producing, trying to figure out what it takes in, in real practical, immediate terms to, to produce that kind of work. Uh, can I take a photo of you? Yeah, sure. Thank you. My name is Ivan and I'm a photo blogger. 
I'm running a blog called Face Hunter, and Face Hunter is international street style blog. I try usually to to meet and photograph people who have the, a unique lifestyle, who at least do the things in their own way and express themselves visually and through the clothing. One of the other really interesting aspects of the book and also the blog, Urban Field Notes, is this question of the blog being this sort of thing in the academy where academics say, we need to engage the public, how should we do it, let's have a blog. But you took it one step further, and the blog was not just about communicating with an intended audience, although it was that, but also as a research tool in and of itself. Yeah, it was an interesting kind of balancing act. So I, I didn't entirely know what I expected the technology to do for me when I first started the project. I knew I wanted to be really transparent about how I was doing this work, and I wanted to have something like open access field notes for the project. So I thought, all right, my audience is going to experience through you know, along with me, what it is that I'm going through right now. And so I wrote a lot of my daily notes about the experience of being out on the street, of learning to use my camera properly, of interactions that I had with other bloggers. Then when I started attending Fashion Week events, who I was encountering, how I was attempting to shoot them, what it's like to shoot alongside other people. And then I'd get real-time feedback from other people who were at the same events that I was at uh, about their experience, about the way I described it, how it may have differed from the way that they experienced it. And that was really useful, really valuable uh, uh, material for me. At the same time, I envisioned the blog as being a way to um, connect with and engage with uh, a, a larger community of street style bloggers. And it was that to a certain extent, particularly in the early days when I set about to systematically interview and then post my interview on Urban Field Notes with all the people that I could manage to, to, to find who are part of that world. So I used it as a, as a way of forging these kinds of connections. Now this goes back to some of what I was saying before about how the field that I was studying or this, this object that I was, this sort of subject position I was attempting to occupy was shifting as I was attempting to occupy it. Now, one part of the equation is that the blog stopped being important to the bloggers that I was uh, working with and that I was studying. But blogs simply don't have the same status in the fashion industry that they did five years ago. That role is now fulfilled by Instagram, almost exclusively. And so a lot of the people that I was identifying as bloggers were letting their blogs go towards the end of my research, right? And yeah. so what are they now? They're not bloggers anymore. Hmm. This this particular medium that they were using to, to define themselves is not the basis of their identity anymore. So many of the people that I talked about as bloggers or identified as bloggers at the beginning of the project, by the end of the book, were either were identifying themselves primarily as photographers. And a lot of, you know, other kind of fashion bloggers have redefined themselves now as influencers because influencers mm. have influence across media platforms. And they're not defined by their blogs. Mm -hmm. They're defined by the kind of content they produce. So that's the shift that's ha that happened as I was attempting to become a blogger. <laughs> you know?
would say that there is something of an anti-fashion bias in anthropology, which I get. In fact, I share it to a certain extent because I conflate like many uh, other anthropologists and, and social scientists committed to social justice issues, uh, a natural distrust of an industry that profits off of promoting very particular models of personhood and not others, <laughs> right? Right, right? And also, and certain forms of consumption. And certain forms of consumption. It is a, it's an industry, of course, that requires us to continually buy and discard. And as a consequence, fashion, of course, is the number two most polluting industry on earth. Right? Right, yeah. And so we have, uh, just in terms of the production process, the dyes, the carbon costs of shipping things around the world, the, um, the landfills, the chemicals that are, that are in clothing after they're discarded that leach into the soil and the waterways. Right? This is a, a, a major industry that profits off of convincing people that they need to look and be a certain way. Right? and that they have to purchase in order to do that. One of the reasons that anthropologists are just so distrustful uh, of fashion is that fashion has a tendency to take things that have uh, real meaning and consequence in people's lives and turn them into something um, disposable. <laughs> right? Into commodities. Into commodities, exactly. But commodities specifically that are meant to um, become obsolete quickly. Right commodities to be quickly replaced by other commodities. And so when cultural appropriation happens in fashion, which it does routinely and repeatedly, right? That's why it matters because it, it ends up turning something that has real value and consequence in people's everyday lives into something cheap and disposable that we're gonna get rid of and go on to something else. And it is a situation where four Western cities, New York, London, Paris, and Milan, dominate the production and dissemination of fashion worldwide, and which uh, innumerable other parties have attempted to break into that set of four power players in the industry for decades now. Uh, and you see Tokyo, this, for example. Tokyo, for example, has positioned itself as the fifth fashion center, but it never quite solidified. Um, Shanghai is another major contender for that right now. Seoul uh, has been vying for that position. And it has real consequences for the economies at large of these countries um, for quite a number of reasons. Um, one of these is that there's a hierarchy set up within the fashion industry, which has really broad sweeping effects between those countries, mainly the United States, France, Italy, and the United Kingdom, who are by and large responsible for the design and marketing of fashion. Right? They dominate the, the, the fashion industry in terms of those high status and high profit reaping aspects of um, fashion. Now, most of the rest of the world is confined either to being consumers of fashion or manufacturers uh, of the outsourced designs of those major fashion capitals. So, why does uh, Japan care about putting Tokyo on the fashion map? Why does Jakarta care about putting Indonesia on the fashion map? Well, it, it matters because being known for the design and marketing and dissemination of fashion fundamentally alters the kinds of jobs and uh, economic you know, possibilities that are available within that sort of space. It alters the power relationships of the fashion world, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I was interested in when I was interested in street style was really 
was in fact fundamentally an issue of social justice because what street style bloggers were doing was attempting to put their own cities on the fashion map in a meaningful way and to make them matter to the international fashion industry. And back in 2005, it looked like it was working for a short period of time. But you know, when, when street style blogs started, it seemed to me like this was a moment of uh, finally, you know, the industry is stopping to pay attention to what's going on in all these places that didn't used to matter to it, except as sources of manufacture. I mean, Seoul and, and Tokyo are maybe the most successful examples of people who have really used street style to, to put themselves out there, but it was happening in Buenos Aires, it was happening in um, Rio de Janeiro, it was happening in all these kinds of places. Like Sao Paulo became a fashion destination in no small part because of the street style photographers who started to document Sao Paulo Fashion Week. And then when it started to matter, people started sending in uh, you know professional street style photographers to shoot it. Um, Tbilisi in Georgia became uh, just in the last year has become a major fashion story because of this. The government of Georgia recognized that street style actually mattered. And if the fashion industry is strong within a country, it attracts a luxury high-end tourist, right? And so... Um, I several of my friends who shoot for major fashion publications now who've been doing some street style thing for a long time have been paid and I don't know who exactly the entity within the government that's paying for it is paying Vogue and W and all these magazines to cover it right uh, and so then they send out their house photographers to do it so right. that's like so oh, this is the political economics of right. you know of, yeah, yeah. of street style right Absolutely. it's in these kinds of encounters and how you get this to happen you know Yvonne Roddick's job full-time job is to be paid by entrepreneurs who have some kind of stake in putting their own city um, uh, you know, on the map for the fashion industry to fly out there and document how cool the kids are in that town. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So he so gets it's like paid. the commodification of cool in a way. It is very much. Yeah. Very, I mean, so he, you know, when I interviewed him back in, I think it was 2014, he had, he had been to 52 different cities that year in like 24 different countries. He lives, and I put in air quotes, um, in London, hmm. but doesn't really spend any time there because he's being flown all over the world to, to show how cool their, their scene is. It has consequence. In this episode, you heard samples from Stuart Hall's On the Ubiquity of the Image, King Crimson's Mate Kurasai, Claudio's TED Talk on how to translate the feeling into sound, Mark Ronson's TED Talk on how sampling changed music, Yvonne Roddick speaking about his work, and some clips from Tbilisi Fashion Week. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll tune into our next episode, which turns our attention to biological anthropology and hominid evolution. We'll be talking to Ralph Holloway of Columbia University and Shara Bailey of NYU. Please do tune in then. Thanks.